0: Hi, I'm Dr. Steven Richheimer, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to Pain Know How, the official podcast of the online pain medicine program at the Keck School of Medicine at USC, the University of Southern California. I'm the program director. This podcast is dedicated to sharing evidence-based information to enhance the practice of any clinician that treats patients that experience pain. All our speakers are experts in their fields and they will provide listeners with the most up-to-date information. Thank you for listening. Now let's go to today's episode.
1: My name is Susan Inginos. Um, In addition to teaching in the, in the pain program in dentistry, I am an assistant dean of diversity and inclusion at the Um, USC School of Gerontology, and I'm also an associate professor there. I conduct, big surprise, I conduct research in palliative care and end of life. Um, So this is my area of research. I want to start by just talking about some of the causes of pain at end of life. Um, Some of the causes are related to the illness itself. Um, Other times, the treatment and the medication, the procedures, operations can cause pain, Um, side effects, particularly, I think Erin could talk more on this than I can, but particularly around pain meds. So we know pain meds cause constipation, which is a a, a big problem um, in terms of discomfort with our patients and um, other illnesses that the patients have other comorbidities. And Overall, I think it's really important, Erin's gonna talk a little bit more about um, the different types of pain, but overall it's really important to recognize that pain isn't only physical, it's psychological, it's emotional, it's spiritual. So there's a lot of different forms of pain that we're addressing when we're talking about end of life care. This is some research that Jean Kutner from um, University of Colorado has done. And she looked at um, patients that were admitted to hospice and palliative care programs and she looked at the most prevalent symptoms that um, they experienced in the first couple of weeks of the program and you can see that you know fatigue we see this a lot at end of life it's it's it, Research study after study has shown that it's one of the most prevalent conditions. Um, Pain is is soon after, dry mouth, shortness of breath, feeling drowsy, lack of appetite, and and this went on. But I I wanted to show you this because I I wanted to follow it up with what her second inquiry with this, it's a very small sample, but it gives you an idea of, of the different things that patients are experiencing. When they asked about most distressing sen- um, symptom, you can see how things kind of changed around. So um, pain and discomfort was one of the most di- um, distressing symptom experience. They also talked about weakness and fatigue, shortness of breath. And it's really interesting to see that you have psychosocial issues here too. Um, they had some, uh, you know a myriad of other physical problems that they listed specifically. That um, it, it really illustrates the fact that we're talking about a, a wide range of problems and discomfort, um, not specifically only pain. And and again, pain could be psychosocial. We see depression. We see uh, anxiety. This this research is um, I think really important because it it shows this is a. Um, analysis on a longitudinal data set on the health and retirement survey, which is a nationally representative data set of older adults. And this is looking at people in their last year of life and reporting um, a pain. So you can see the top line talks about um, people reporting any pain and then the lighter blue that is is really in close, closely um, mirroring that upper line is moderate or severe pain. And what this is showing us is that from 1998 to 2010, there's a significant upward trend in um, the rate of, uh, the, or the portion of individuals that experienced any pain and also moderate to severe pain in the last year of life. Um, So I mean, this is pretty alarming. That's um, just over half of the people. They also looked at physical, psychological and cognitive symptoms. Um, Specifically, they looked at depression and periodic confusion. And again, we're seeing these upward trends, which is is really surprising, because when we look at Um, Programs like hospice that are developed to to care for people who are in the last six months of life, Um, and they focus largely on pain and symptom management. Um, We know that enrollment over the years has increased tremendously, and yet we're still seeing these higher rates of depression, confusion, pain, and symptoms. Similar patterns were found for dyspnea, shortness of breath, and incontinence. And, and also for anorexia and severe fatigue. So we're seeing um, increased levels of discomfort in our patients in the last year of life. Um, One of the things this is, I think this is kind of an interesting, um, some interesting research that came out relatively recently. One of the things that may be accounting for some of these trends, although this would be um, we would expect to see these trends even um, more elevated, right? With more recent data is um, and this was done in the large hospital, a study in a large hospital of opioid prescriptions among patients that were discharged from the hospital to, to hospice. And in 2010, over 90% of them were on opioids compared to only 80% by 2018. And as we know, there's been, you know, a big, um, Crackdown on opioid use, and and it's been di- more difficult for individuals in a hospice and at end of life to get access to um, opioids. And then from um, in another study that looked at um, data from two thousand ten to two thousand eighteen on opioid uh, dosage in the last month of life um, among VA patients, they found that the, there was a decrease in morphine use and dosage, as well as an uh, increase in uncontrolled pain. So when you look at the rates for the dosage of morphine in 2010, 45 milligrams, and it's decreased by 2018 to 34.3 milligrams, and the, un- the rate of uncontrolled pain, 50 almost 52%, up to 57%. Um, similarly, for non-cancer patients, so you see the, the decrease in, in morphine and the increase in pain. So this is, you know, it's suggesting that there's a correlation here, and that and those trends that that I just presented um, are most likely expected to increase. So I'm sure many of you know what a hospice is, but I just want to talk a little bit about it, make sure we are all on the same page. So as I mentioned earlier, a hospice is a benefit for people in their last six months of life. Um, when people enroll in hospice, they they agree to forego curative care, which really means that their source of care is going to be the hospice program, rather than going to the emergency room in the hospital. Um, so uh, the focus of, of all of the care they receive is around, pain and symptom management, psychosocial support, spiritual support in lieu of aggressive care or curative care. So no longer are they receiving care that is aimed at curing their condition, but rather providing palliative care, palliation for those conditions. So, you know, that focus on pain and symptom management. So, hospice is, you know, as I mentioned, hospice is um, really for people in the last six months of life. Um, and then, before then, most of our care in our healthcare system is, is really focused on preventive care, curative care, life prolonging therapy. And then, just at the very end, um, do patients receive care um, such as pain and symptom relief, psychosocial support? And that's not really as um, well accessed in our healthcare system. Um, in terms of concurrent care, receiving that type of care alongside with aggressive care, unless people are at the very end of life. And this has traditionally been the focus. Um, But one of the things that's really concerning is that although this is a benefit that was developed for people in the last um, six months of life, um, from this graph, you can see that nearly 30% are dying in the first week. So people are coming into hospice pretty late in their health condition. And um, I think and looking at the bigger picture, when you look at the last 30 days of life, you can see, I mean, the 30, surviving 30 days, you can see that 53% die within the first 30 days. So it's it's more than half the patients who come to hospice um, are, don't make it past the first 30 days. So when we go back up to our our, our table here, this is really, we're talking about days rather than months in terms of access to this care, which is why palliative care is so important. Um, So palliative care was originally introduced as a way of integrating more of the pain and symptom management earlier in the disease trajectory before they get to hospice, before those last, you know, ideally six months, but in reality, you know, anywhere from a week to to 30 days. Um, And then um, as The patient's pain and symptoms and disease progress, they receive more and more palliative care until they're ready to transition to hospice. Hopefully when they meet hospice eligibility criteria, they can transition to hospice. Uh, In recent years, um, there's been a, a, a new model that's been proposed where palliative care is more integrated within all aspects of of healthcare. So we have a disease management, but then in between, people may get a condition. It may not be terminal, but they can have access to palliative care. And then if it's cured, they kind of go back to the other side. Um, so palliative care, ideally, and I say ideally because we're just not quite there yet. Um, we're it's still. Um, I would say palliative. I don't know if you would agree, Erin, but I would say palliative care is still. Um, Relatively in its infancy, um, we don't have stable funding, which means it's always hard to get stable care. Um, So this is a proposed model that palliative care could really be for people who are dealing with any serious illness, regardless of life expectancy. The core components of palliative care really mirror a hospice teams. Um, we have interdisciplinary teams that include a physician, a nurse, social worker, a chaplain, sometimes home health aides are involved. And they focus on, you know, that interdisciplinary nature of the individual. So the physical, the medical, the psychological, social, emotional, spiritual. So it's it's pretty much a whole person care approach, not just a disease focused. Um, Palliative care, because they intervene earlier generally, I should say generally because programs, it depends on when patients come in. Ideally they intervene earlier and there's more time for patient and family education and training. Um, They can coordinate their plan of care. They focus on pain and symptom management and really comprehensive care that focuses on the whole person. And if the pa- patient has a desire and need for aggressive care, the patient can continue to do that. So palliative care allows an individual to receive aggressive care, as well as that pain and symptom management, that component that you get in hospice. So just looking at a side-by-side comparison between palliative care and hospices, um, physicians aren't required to give a six month prognosis for palliative care. Patients don't have to forego curative or aggressive care. And, um, and then the palliative care physician coordinates care with other care providers that the patient is working with. So they would work with um, the oncologist or they may work with the primary care physician or the cardiologist to be, make sure that everyone's on the same page and that the care is coordinated. There's um, several different approaches to palliative care. Um, Aaron works in um, hospital-based palliative care program where he has a consult- consultancy service. Um, uh, most of my research has been in home-based palliative care where the, the care is provided in the home, very similar to hospice models. And there's out, actually outpatient clinics. So there's outpatient palliative care clinics that are, could either be provided in conjunction with um, a specialty practice or individually as its own practice. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's just going to talk briefly about some of the evidence around the effectiveness. Um, and this is a pain and symptoms. This is a, a small study we did at inpatient, a, a Kaiser um, palliative, inpatient palliative care service. And it seems like the pain is really low, but this actually includes people without pain because pain is variable. So we wanted to include even without pain, which makes the average look lower. But you can see we had a significant decline even two hours after the consult. And I think um, what's really amazing to me about all these studies of pain that are done um, in the hospital, which similarly to this one, this is looking at pain in the uh, hospitalized patients. You can see the dramatic decline It's is that these patients are already in the hospital and ideally they're already receiving um, some type of pain control. So it it clearly illustrates the specialty of palliative care, that palliative care um, physicians have specialty training and knowledge in terms of how best to alleviate pain and symptoms. And this is looking, this data is looking at secretions and dyspnea. And you can see again we have a, a pretty sharp decrease. And similarly, there's been um, some studies, and I'm just highlighting some of the, the more robust studies. There's a lot of studies out there. Um, these are from some of the randomized control trials that have been conducted and um, looking, this, these are outcomes looking at psychological distress. Um, this study here was an oncology clinic that was palliative care provided with, um, alongside of, uh, oncology care. And they found this instrument is the HADS depression and this is HADS anxiety and the PHQ-9 is another depression scale. I'm not sure why they use two depression scales, but the good part is they had consistent finding that people that were randomized to standard care here, they, their. are um, Level of depression was significantly higher than those who received standard care plus palliative care. Anxiety, similarly, not quite as much of a decline, but it had a significant decline. And then, of course, the the other um, depression measure. And looking here at this other study of homebound patients, you can see this is, I mean, pretty much um, significant declines for all the, the variables they studied, which included depression, anxiety, as well as pain, tiredness, and appetite loss. And um, I, the business case for um, palliative care is that it reduces medical service use. So it's, it's a really interesting thing. You provide really good care and symptom management. And guess what? Patients don't go to the hospital because they don't need to, right? They don't... Um, They don't need to come back because they have a good care plan in place or they're getting really good pain and symptom management. So um, this data comes from the first randomized controlled trial of an inpatient palliative care program. They found that among those that were discharged and came back there for those who received the palliative care consult, which... I, you can't, this is, this is usual care here. This is the palliative care, the green, those that receive the palliative care consult are significantly less likely to be readmitted to the ICU. Um, and this is some data that from our home-based palliative care trial that we conducted and um, or published on in 2007, um, that shows that for our palliative care group, um, which is in the yellow, our palliative care group was, They were about um, about one-fifth were admitted to the emergency room versus one-third of those receiving usual care and about one-third were hospitalized as compared to um, almost double of um, those receiving usual care and and I think the thing that's really interesting about this is that with palliative care especially with our home our home-based palliative care program nobody was advised that they um, didn't, didn't go to the emergency room or the hospital. And this, it was just because they were receiving, were receiving a lot of care and early intervention at home. Um, one of the interesting things that came out of the, the study by Jennifer Temel and her colleagues uh, in um, the care received in oncology clinic, having palliative care, early palliative care in oncology clinic, showed that patients actually survived longer. And this was a surprising outcome. And I, and I have to say, this is our data did not show that in our home-based palliative care program. Ours was not, uh, not significant in terms of survival, but we had a strong trend where our palliative care program patients died sooner and which was really thought to be um, the standard that p- patients were really selecting quality of life over quantity. But an interesting finding is that people made different um, decisions in terms of interventions and a less aggressive care which most likely had an impact on their survival. So it, um, I don't know, I, I would I would be hesitant to say that this could be replicated across conditions, um, but certainly there may be other cancers that we could see that same outcome with.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Pain Know-How. If you want more information about our online programs, please visit our website at painmed.com usc.edu or send an email to us at usc.edu. Looking forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.